0: Welcome to Center Street Church. Wherever you are joining us from today, thank you for being here. We are going to be taking communion in our service today. And in order to get to that part of the service, I actually wanna start with a popular verse, but not common to communion. John 14, one to four. Jesus says in this passage, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. This is definitely more common to be read at a funeral than a communion. Speaking of funerals, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to share a story with you about my first funeral as clergy. I was the associate pastor at a church in Wisconsin working under Pastor Bill. We had an elderly couple in our church for the sake of this story. Their names are Eugene and Carol. Eugene was not doing well. He had, uh, he's a World War II vet. He's quite uh, elderly. He'd been sick for several years and vegetated for the last couple. We went up on a Thursday to visit uh, Carol and Eugene in the hospital. That's kind of where the story picks up. Uh, Friday, hadn't heard anything, everything's fine. Um, I had a cold at the time, so Friday night, I had some stuff I needed to do on Saturday, so I wanted to sleep well, so I took above-recommended doses of NyQuil to try to help me sleep. Saturday morning, I wake up to a phone call from Pastor Bill. I'm a little out of it, thanks to the aforementioned NyQuil, and he says, hey, TJ, just got a call from Carol. Eugene passed away about an hour ago. Okay, we were kind of expecting this. I'm not sure why he felt the need to call me. He said, well, I'm an hour away in Marinette. I'm like, okay. He goes, you got to go. I'm like, I'm uh, I'm sorry, what? He goes, you need to go. I'm like, I can't. He goes, why not? So I'm roughing a volleyball game this morning. And he goes, well, half hour there, half hour with her, half hour back. You'll be fine. I'm like, ah, what do I do? He goes, well, go up there, read some scripture with her, pray, tell her I'll be up uh, later this afternoon. I said, okay, what do I read? He goes, read uh, John 14, uh, read Psalm 23. Uh, make sure you take a King James Version Bible. That's what she will be used to. I'm like, oh, okay. So take a quick shower, throw on some pastory clothes, find my King James Bible and head up to town. On the way up, I do what I call Christian distracted driving where I've got my Bible open on the seat next to me and I'm reading through John 14, trying to find uh, what am I supposed to read to this lady? Totally forgetting the verses that we just read. I memorized those in Bible school for this very purpose so that I would know what to read in a moment like this. Thanks to the NyQuil, gone. So I'm reading and about halfway through the chapter, I see this subtitle that says, The Comforter. I'm like, perfect, I'll start there get up to the hospital, go in, go to the nurse's station. Hi, I'm looking for Carol. I'm from her church, her husband. Oh yeah, she's upstairs. Okay. So I go to that nurse's station, same thing. And they're like, yeah, she's down the hall in the room. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, she's in the room? Yes. Okay. Expected a waiting room, but all right. So I go down the hall, go into the room and there is Carol and there's Eugene. He is still there. I was not emotionally ready for this because Eugene uh, used to have a ventilator on, but now that he is no longer with us, he doesn't, and I apologize, but this is what Eugene now looks like. And he's looking at me, but not, and it re- I'm just, I wasn't ready for this. The NyQuil, everything, I'm, ah, hello, Carol, I'm really sorry about your loss. Um, Pastor Bill will be up later. Can, can I read some scripture with you? She goes, oh, would that be nice? So we sit down, me, Carol, Eugene, and I pull out my Bible and I go to John 14 and I go to the part that says the comforter. Here's the problem. If you read that passage, especially to a new widow, it's not very comforting because it's Jesus talking and he says things like, I'm leaving you, I'm going away, you're gonna be alone, you're not gonna see me anymore. And I'm like, this is not very comforting. But I'm like, it's the Bible, it's gotta get better. So I just keep reading, get all the way to the end of the chapter, which is a surprisingly long chapter when you shouldn't be reading it. It doesn't get any better. So now I look up, and there's Carol, and there's Eugene, and, and I'm trying to explain to her why I just read this passage to a brand new widow. I'm like, um, so this was a good passage to read because uh, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit who's called the Comforter, but he can't come until Jesus leaves. And Let's read Psalm 23. So I flip over to Psalm 23, nailed that one, felt pretty good about that. And then I'm like, you know, Carol, I'm really sorry, but I've got a few other appointments today. Pastor Bill will be up later. Can I pray with you? And she says, oh, that'd be nice. So she reaches over and takes my hand and then she takes Eugene's hand. And I'm like, okay. I prayed something. I have no idea what I said. I finish. I go out to the nurse's station, sanitize like there's no tomorrow, go straight across the street to McDonald's where I buy the largest black coffee and the greasiest breakfast sandwich to try to jumpstart things. And then this was before you couldn't, especially in the States, you couldn't talk on the phone while you drove. I called Pastor Bill and just yelled on the phone, he was still in the room. Why is he in the room? Which Pastor Bill, he's a seasoned pastor. He's seen this. He thinks this is the funniest thing in the world. I've never seen this. So we go forward a couple of days, it's funeral time. We're very involved because they didn't really have any family around the area. So I get to church that day and Pastor Bill goes, "Hey, you're singing a solo and you're reading scripture. And I'm like, No, I'm not. He goes, Why not? I said, I'm sick. I can't sing. Okay, you don't have to sing, but you're reading scripture. Fine. So we're driving to the funeral. I look at the bulletin and it says scripture reading, John 14, 1 to 4. And I flip there and I read this passage. I'm like, Oh, that makes way more sense. That's the one I should have read. And then I told Pastor Bill, He thought that was humorous. I read the right passage at the funeral and everything went well. That will tie in to our message in just a few moments. But in order to get to where we wanna go in this message, there's actually kind of three panels we're going to build. At first, they're gonna seem like they're kind of standing on their own, but hang with me. In the end, I believe they tie together beautifully. I'm super excited to show you how and why this all points towards communion. Panel number one. For the next few moments, mentally, I want you to go back to Egypt, back in Exodus. We are Hebrew slaves in Egypt. Genesis has come and gone. We've gone down into Egypt. We went favorably because of Joseph. Now we've got a Pharaoh on the throne who doesn't know anything about Joseph, and he has made us slaves. Every day is the same as the one before. We wake up, we make bricks for Pharaoh, we go to bed. We wake up, we make more bricks for Pharaoh, we go to bed. History has stalled. We're God's special people. We are not in his special land. We're crying out to God for 400 years. God, where are you? God, save us. Nothing. Then he sends Moses to come and be our rescuer. Moses comes and he shows God's power with plagues. We've had nine so far where God is waging war on Egypt. That brings us to tonight. The night that is going to be unlike any other. The night when history starts. Tonight, we are told, is the 10th plague. Death angel. Death angel is coming, and he is going to kill and destroy the firstborn in every family. Now, firstborn. This is really, really important. The firstborn is the legal representative of the, fa- of the family. Uh, the firstborn son would inherit all the family wealth, all the identity, everything. So in a way... Pharaoh's firstborn son is more important than Pharaoh because if Pharaoh dies, Pharaoh's firstborn son keeps the dynasty and the kingdom going. If Pharaoh's firstborn son dies, the kingdom ends. So God sends death angel. Death angel is going to kill the firstborn in every family, including Pharaoh's. Why? Ah, Because Pharaoh has waged war on God. Look what God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh and God have gone to war and God is going to end this war with death angel. Death angel is going to come. He's going to destroy the firstborn in every household. It's a hopeless situation. You know it's coming, you can't stop it. And then we, God's chosen people are offered some hope. God tells Moses to tell us that if we take a lamb, a perfect lamb, one without blemish, one without spot, and kill it as a sacrifice, and then take this plant, hyssop, and make a paintbrush out of it and dip it in the blood of that lamb, and then paint the doorposts and the crossbeam of our house. What's fascinating there is if you make that motion, doorpost, doorpost, crossbeam, you actually just drew the Hebrew letter chet, which means live or life, So. If you're putting this together, if in faith you kill a lamb, if the lamb dies in place of the firstborn and you in faith paint life over the doorposts of your house, tonight when death angel comes, he's going to kill. Something is going to die. Someone is going to die. If the lamb has died in your place, the firstborn will be spared. That's exactly what happens. Lambs are killed all across Israel's part of Egypt. And then God says, take that lamb cook it and eat a ceremonial meal and remember this night because this is the night God is answering your prayers and bringing you out of captivity. It's exactly what happens. Death angel comes. Anywhere there is no blood, he goes into the house and he kills the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn and the dynasty ends. But anywhere the blood of the lamb is spread over the doorpost and the lamb has died in your place, he does not kill. Instead, he passes over that house. And this meal becomes known as Passover, the night when the lamb died in your place. Pharaoh kicks Israel out and we come out of captivity to Egypt under the blood of the lamb to Mount Sinai, into unity and harmony with our God, where he sets up a covenant with us, a conditional covenant where if you follow me, if you obey my rules, then I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'll give you a special land. He gives them 10 commandments to follow. And the people say, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. And instantly they break the commandments. And that's just a picture of what's going to happen for the rest of Israel's history. They keep breaking God's commandments. God sends prophets to warn them to obey, to return to the old covenant, to go back to Sinai, to obey their God so he will be their God. Then we meet Jeremiah. Jeremiah stops focusing on Mount Sinai, and he starts focusing on what he calls the new covenant, which he writes about in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. There are five huge promises given to us in this passage. Number one, God's gonna write his law on our minds and on our hearts, not on tablets of stone that can be broken or hidden. He will be our God. We will be his people. We will know him. Not just know priests who know him, we will know him. And he's offering forgiveness of sin. The entire sacrificial system was built on the fact that there is no forgiveness. There's just temporary covering. You sin, you offer a sacrifice that covers up to that point. When you sin again, you need another sacrifice. Forgiveness This is bigger. This is better. And if you notice, none of this depended on the people. The whole covenant is based on God and his faithfulness. But that's where our panel, our first panel ends, is Israel every year having Passover, remembering the night unlike any other, where they came out of captivity into unity and harmony with their God. But then they focus on the unfulfilled promises because they kept breaking the covenant. End of panel one. Panel two, Israel is once again in captivity to a godless kingdom. Was Egypt last time? Panel two, it's Rome. The prophets have gone silent. It's been 400 years since we've heard anything from God. And the people are crying out, God, where are you? God, why won't you do anything? Once again, God responds to his people's plea. And he sends them rescue. But this time, instead of sending a lamb or death angel, to save the firstborn, this time he sends Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation. This is bigger, this is better. God himself, Jesus Christ, takes his infinite being, confines himself to space and time, comes as a man, lives a perfect life. And when he's 30 years old, he's walking out into the wilderness where John the Baptist is preaching and baptizing people. John sees Jesus and look what he says in verse 29 of his first chapter, John 129. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you were a Jew standing there in the audience and you heard John say this, Man, this just so many things flooded your mind. Look, the lamb, that's about Passover. That's about that night back there, panel one, the night unlike any other when God brings us out of captivity under the blood of the lamb into unity and harmony. The the lamb of God, whoa, that's bigger. Who takes away sin? Lambs don't take away sin. They just cover sin. This is different. The sin of the world. Well, that's not just Israel. That includes Gentiles. That includes you and me. This is bigger. This is better. This sounds like the new covenant. This sounds like Jeremiah. We need to follow this lamb. Well, the old covenant was instituted with the sacrifice of the lamb. We have another lamb, the lamb of God, who's supposed to take away the sins of the world. He ends up being sacrificed. We call it the crucifixion. The night before he is sacrificed, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, sits down, at a meal with his disciples. Not any meal. This is Passover. This is about that back there, panel one. The meal that represents the night God rescued his people. He sits down at Passover. And then after thousands of years of this meal, meaning the same thing every year, he changes and redefines it to make it about himself. Look at what Luke says in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. And he, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He takes the meal that for thousands of years has been about that back there. And he says, it's actually about me, which is true. Because even back there, those were pictures of true redemption, which was gonna be in him. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant. That's the Jeremiah thing. So there's promises in this cup. And then he finishes the meal. He's arrested. The next morning he's crucified and he rises again. And the lamb of God makes possible... Our reconciliation, which is what we remember at communion. End of panel two. Panel three. In order to fully grasp everything that's going on in this, uh, in this meal, in this ceremony, we actually need to understand Jewish wedding customs and culture. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to describe to you as best I understand what my and Joanna's wedding would have looked like if we were a first century Jewish couple instead of a 21st century North American couple. Here's what would have happened as best I understand. First, my father and her father would have sat down at a meal together. To have a meal with somebody in that culture is to affirm them. It's to say, I'm okay with you, I trust you, I trust your integrity, I will do business with you. This is why it was such a scandal when Jesus would have a meal with somebody like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, because he was affirming his personhood, it's not okay. So our fathers would sit down and then my dad would say something like, I wanna arrange a marriage between my son and your daughter and her dad would say, okay, which daughter? Cause he has two. And so they talk about it, they go, well, Janelle's great, but Joanna's better for TJ, which is true. And so, okay, great, we know what? Wedding, we know who, TJ and Joanna. Now we need to discuss the dowry because when I marry her and take her out of that family and bring her into mine, I'm removing an employee, a possible earning power from her, fa- her family and her father. So I need to replace that. So a couple of chickens, a couple of goats. Joanna's really awesome. So like 10 cows, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree, right? Like that's what's going on there. So, okay, great. We've got this established. We've got a wedding between TJ and Joanna, and here's how much is going to go there. Now we have a engagement party where our families come together. This is multi-generational living. A lot of scholars believe that a town like Bethlehem had like 500 people, and there was only like seven or eight families represented there. So if our two families got together, this could have been over 100 people at this party. Everybody knows what's coming. At some point, we're going to have an engagement. What that means is at some point during dinner, during the party, I'm going to go get a cup of wine. And I'm going to go over to Joanna and I'm going to offer it to her. This is the equivalent of me having a little box with a ring and getting down on one knee and asking her to marry me when I hand her that cup of wine. Now for just a couple of seconds, everyone's gonna kind of hold their breath and maybe don't make eye contact because she still has veto power. We've already arranged that it's me and Joanna, but she could say no. Odds of her saying no, because that would mean she goes against her dad's wish and in a shame honor society, very, very unlikely, but she could. And I could look like the biggest moron. So for a few seconds, as I offer it, everyone's, "Ah, what's going to happen? If she rejects me and my marriage proposal, she does not accept a glass of wine. If she accepts the wedding proposal, she takes the glass of wine, takes a drink, and then I give this little speech that we'll come back to in just a moment. Well, now we are legally together, but we're not married. It's what's called betrothed. Think Mary and Joseph and uh, the, the Christmas story. At this point, lots of things have to happen. My role, I actually have to go back to my dad's house and start to build an apartment because I will build a place that we will then uh, live in and it'll be multi-generational. So I got to build an apartment on this. Um, So if I had brothers, like this place could be quite large. So you think of like Pastor Henry, four sons, they've got their own postal code, right? Like this is big. And so uh, I have to build an apartment. What's interesting is the apartment is not ready until it reflects the worth of my bride. She doesn't know when that is. I don't even know when that is. One person knows, my dad. And every week or so, he comes and he checks on my work and kind of looks around the job site. Nope, not good enough. Keep going. Nope, still not good enough. This doesn't reflect Joanna's worth. So I keep building. I keep building. Meanwhile, that's my job. What is she doing? She's learning all of her role in keeping a house in that time. So probably cooking, cleaning, going to the market, those kinds of things. When she goes out in public, she wears a veil so that people know she's taken. And then uh, she doesn't know when the house is done because I don't even know. So uh, in order to be ready for when I am finished and come back for her, during the day she's ready and during the night, she lights a lamp and puts it in the window so I can find it. And that explains that parable of the 10 virgins with lamps, five with oil, five without. That's what's going on there. Well, there comes a day where I've been working hard and my dad comes in and he looks around and he goes, yes, this reflects Joanna's worth. Go get her. Well, I've been working hard, so I'm going to shave and shower and call my buddies the wedding party, and it's wedding time. So we head to town. If it's daytime, we go to the house. If it's night, we go looking for the lamp, and we find her, and Joanna and I go to the local rabbi where we have a ceremony where we stand under what's called, if I'm saying it right, a chopa, which is a prayer shawl held up by four sticks. We stand under it and exchange vows saying that this wedding is between us and God. After that, after the ceremony, we go back to the place I just finished for seven days, which is where we get our idea of the modern day honeymoon. And then we go back where we gather with everybody, not just our families, but the whole area for the wedding feast, the party. And this is no cake and punch reception here. This is a hours, if not days long party. It's supposed to reflect my father's wealth. And so if he's a wealthy man, this goes for a long time. If you remember Jesus's First miracle, he turned water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana. What happened there was like the worst case scenario for a stately respected gentleman. He ran out of wine for the party before the guests ran out of party. And so he had an issue. Jesus takes this potential shame moment. He takes it on himself in a picture of his whole ministry. He takes the man's shame on himself, fixes the problem and it restores honor. not just honor by giving him wine, but the guests say, you brought out the best wine at the end, wedding feasts could go for a long time. That is where uh, the celebration would have happened with the families and then we live happily ever after. If you remember a few moments ago, I said when I offered Joanna the glass of wine, I give a little speech. Let me tell you what that little speech is. I'm paraphrasing here, but it would go kind of like this. I'd offer her the wine, she'd take it, and I'd say, in my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you can be also. Does this sound familiar? This is John 14, one to four. This is the passage we started with. And what's the context of John 14? Look at John 13, verses one and two. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. The evening meal was in progress. Jesus is sitting at a meal, not just any meal. He's sitting at Passover in John 13, which is where we get John 14. So what's going on here? Okay, this is Passover. This is the meal that's about panel one, back there when God rescued his people. At Passover, Jesus sits with his disciples who in a few weeks are going to preach at Pentecost and the church is going to be born. The church is called the bride of Christ. So if we're starting to put this together, Jesus is sitting with his future bride, sitting at a meal, affirming them. Then he takes this and he establishes the dowry he's willing to pay For his bride. Remember Luke uh, 22, where it said that he takes the bread and says, this is my body. No goats or camels here. I am willing to pay my very life. I will lay down my life for you as my bride. Jesus establishes the dowry. And then at the end of dinner, He takes the cup, which again has been about that back there, says it's about panel two, the new covenant, and then he offers it to them. And then as the disciples take a drink, he drops a proposal speech on them. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you can be also. Every married guy in the room has used this speech and every single guy has it prepared for when it's his turn to give that engagement speech. What's happening here? Jesus is proposing to the church saying that I will pay with my life and what are the wedding promises he gives? The new covenant. I'll write my law on your mind and on your hearts. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You will know me personally, intimately and there will be forgiveness of sin. The next day, He dies on the cross, he pays the dowry. And then what happens? He rises again, lives on earth for 40 days. And then he goes to his father's house where for the last 2000 years, he has been preparing a place for us so that he can come and take us there. We don't know when it's done. Apparently, according to Mark 13, he doesn't even know when it's done. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. But there is coming a day When God the Father will come in, see what his son has done and says, yes, it's ready. Go get your bride. And then what's going to happen? Jesus is going to come back for us, the church, the one he made it all, the whole communion thing about. When he said that back there is actually about me. He redeemed us. He bought us. He's coming back. And then we will go to the marriage supper of the lamb where we will have a feast that celebrates our union with our new groom, Jesus Christ, and that represents the worth and the value and the wealth of our new father. Thankfully, our father-in-law is loaded. Cattle on a thousand hills. This marriage supper of the lamb is going to last for a thousand years. Look what Revelation 19 says, verses six to nine. John writes, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he said, and he added, these are the true words of God. My friends, blessed are those, we are blessed because we are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So what did Jesus give us to remember this, to help jog our memory? He gave us the visual reminders that we have at communion, the bread and the cup. It reminds me of an engagement ring. Uh, When Joanne and I were engaged, she was in New York City. I was out here, distance. I'm guessing at some point every day, the ring caught her eye, she saw it. I hope she liked the physical ring. I hope it was nice. But what I really hope was that it wasn't about the ring. The ring was actually about the promise that the separation and the waiting would be over and our marriage would happen and we would bring our romance together to live as one family unit forever. We would end the separation, the distance and the waiting, and we would come together. And in the meantime, I gave her a ring to remember that promise. Jesus gives us a visual reminder, like an engagement ring, that every time we take it, every time we come to this table, We are remembering him, what he did, the price he paid, what he was willing to do, the dowry, lay down his very life. We remember panel one, where it's about the lamb. We remember panel two, where it's about Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the firstborn over all creation. And we remember panel three, where it's all headed towards the marriage supper of the lamb, where we will be forever with our groom, with Jesus Christ. And so we want to transition From this part to the part where we actually take communion, where we take a few moments and celebrate and remember with the visual reminder. So I hope you've had a chance to find a piece of bread and a juice or something as we remember who Jesus is, our groom, what he has done, paid the dowry of his very life to set us free. The the wedding vows he has given us, he's gonna write his law, on our minds and on our hearts. He'll be our God, we'll be his people. We will know him and we will have forgiveness of sin. No more covering. This sacrifice that is symbolized here was the perfect once for all sacrifice. And there's forgiveness, there is grace in this cup. And so wherever you are, I encourage you to take this, a picture of the body of Christ and do this, eat this, Remembering the dowry price that your groom has paid. Remembering his death until he comes. Take, eat. This is his body. And it says that after dinner, he took the cup and he offered it to them in a proposal. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This, there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness in here. And so, New Covenant, let's drink together. And as we take these visual reminders, we say with John in Revelation 22, verse 20, come, Lord Jesus, come. And so I invite you, as often as you do this, to do it in remembrance of what Jesus has done and the promise of what will be when we will forever be with our Lord. And I invite you to join the worship team here in the next few moments and sing praises to the beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus, our groom who is coming back for us. And so we wait for him and we long for him and we prepare ourselves for him as a bride adorning herself. That's our role, be blessed.